And as we do that, we're going to dismiss our children to Children's Church. So you have little kiddos who are kindergarten, preschool age. They can make their way to the back. Some of you have been with us during this fall sermon series where we have been working our way through the Ten Commandments. We're calling this sermon series the Law of Perfect Freedom. And what we've seen over the course of our study is that when we see these commandments in light of the gospel of God's grace, when we see Jesus as the one who has perfectly fulfilled all of the commandments, then the commandments change for us. Rather than becoming words of condemnation, they become words that give us perfect freedom and joy as we pursue our Savior, the one who gives us grace that is greater than all of our sins. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word this morning. We're going to read Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 14, giving special attention to verse 14, which is the commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. This is God's word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. And then turning over to James chapter 1, verse 25. This has been our theme verse for this series. James chapter 1, verse 25. James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, writes this. But the one who looks into the perfect law and, and, and for the law of liberty and preserves being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let's go to God in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank you for your law, which is for us in Christ and through Christ, the law of perfect liberty. Lord, we pray that you would use this commandment to set us free from our slavery to sin. We ask that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit, for we, your servants, are listening. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This morning we come to the seventh commandment, the commandment which teaches us that you shall not commit adultery. Now I have to admit that my preparation for this week was a little bit tougher than my preparation for last week. Last week we looked at arguably the least controversial commandment, you shall not murder. And this week we come to arguably the most controversial commandment, which is you shall not commit adultery. Now, as a general rule, our culture is very comfortable talking about sex and sexuality. It's in the movies we watch, it's in the books we read, it's on billboards and commercials and podcasts and broadcasts and vodcasts. It is hard to find a space anywhere in our culture where people are not talking about sex. The church, on the other hand, is very uncomfortable talking about sex. That includes me. (laughs) I have used the word sex exactly four times in this sermon, and it has been uncomfortable all four times. You're not supposed to talk about things like that uh, in church even though there's a whole book dedicated to sex in the Bible. And yet we remain uncomfortable talking about issues like this with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now the interesting thing is, it hasn't always been that way in the history of the church. This week I read a story about a history professor at Yale University who in the 1950s wanted to publish an article in the Yale Review detailing everything that the American Puritans in the 16 and 1700s had written about the topic of sex. It was so explicit and so racy that the publishers of the Yale Review refused to publish the article. Think about this. The Puritans were getting canceled by Yale University (laughs) in the 1950s because of their explicit writings about sex. Well, why? Because the Puritans read their Bibles. And so they, were, they discovered in their Bible reading that God is much less squeamish about issues surrounding sex and sexuality and marriage and adultery and divorce than we are in our modern world. Now, this makes sense, of course, since God invented sex, but I digress. It is probably the understatement of the year to say that things have changed just a little bit since the 1950s. In general, our culture doesn't like the idea of boundaries really around anything, but that's especially true when discussing the boundaries that God puts around marriage. The idea that marriage was designed by God to be a lifelong, exclusive covenant relationship between one man and one woman is seen as strange, antiquated, abusive, archaic, and and maybe even hateful or oppressive. Given the state of marriage in our culture, many people are left wondering why we even need the institution of marriage anymore. After all, isn't marriage just a, a piece of paper? 
Why do we need a piece of paper to prove our love for one another? Why do we need to be married in order to live together and have babies together and purchase houses together? Why is that even necessary? Frankly, for many people, it just isn't. If marriage is simply a human institution, a romantic contract of sorts, then why should we put any limits on it at all? It's not an exaggeration to say that in the last 50 years, there has been a seismic shift in our culture's view of marriage, adultery, and the whole topic of the seventh commandment. And it's probably not an understatement to say that the results have not been good. The sexual revolution promised freedom and liberation, but instead of freedom, we find ourselves more and more enslaved by our passions. Today, we are more obsessed with, neurotic, and unfulfilled when it comes to sex, marriage, and relationships than even the Puritans were when they were getting canceled by Yale in the 1950s. It's like we had a riot outside the prison and broke back in. The good news is there's an alternative. The Bible offers us true freedom, beauty, joy, and fulfillment, a picture of the gospel and our union with Christ through one of God's greatest gifts, the gift of marriage. That's what we're going to talk about today. Now, if you've been with us in this series, you'll probably notice that all but one of the Ten Commandments begins with a prohibition. You shall not have any gods before me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not kill or steal or covet. But you've probably also noticed as we've studied these commandments that with all of the prohibitions, there's an implicit command. The commandments that prohibit us from doing one behavior actually encourage us to do another behavior, a behavior that aligns with the type of people that God has created us to be. And so the commandment which prohibits us from worshiping false gods also admonishes, admonishes us to worship the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Don't kill do value human life. Don't steal. Do be generous. We'll talk about that commandment next week. Today, since marriage is so often maligned and misunderstood, we are going to focus on the positive. We're going to focus on what the commandment requires us to be and do as we think about the God-ordained institution of marriage. As they say, the best defense is a good offense. We're, we're going to begin with the simple biblical premise that marriage is amazing, that marriage is a gift from God, and then once we see how amazing marriage is, I think we'll begin to see more clearly why adultery is so damaging, not only to our spouses, but to really all of society and even to our own souls. Adultery isn't just a mistake or an affair. Adultery tears apart what God has joined together. That's a big deal. 
And if you're not taking that seriously enough, then you don't understand how beautiful marriage is, and you might not understand who Jesus is. Now, that's a long introduction to a rather complicated commandment, so let me give you a roadmap of where we're going. If you're taking notes today, here's our outline. Kind of two big ideas. The first big idea, which will be the majority of the sermon, is I want to show you eight reasons why marriage is amazing. Again, that's 95% of the whole sermon is eight reasons why marriage is amazing. And then I want to show you very briefly how adultery tears marriages apart. Are you ready? All right, let's take a closer look at marriage, adultery, and the seventh commandment. First big idea, overarching idea, is that marriage is amazing. Adultery is sinful because adultery destroys marriages, and marriage is a gift from God. Now, in saying that, in saying that marriage is amazing, and saying that marriage is a gift from God, I don't want to imply in any way that marriage is the only gift from God, or that marriage is the only amazing thing that God has given us to show us how to live. Singleness can be amazing too. Many of you are single because you've either been uh, divorced, or maybe you are a widow or a widower. Some of you are, are single in this season of your life, but you're looking to get married someday in the future. Some of you have always been single and will always be single because that's God's call for your life. You have no desire to be mar married, and that's fine too. That's a good gift. You have something, if that describes you, you have something in common with Jesus, a pretty important single guy. Uh, you have something in common with the Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, also single, made a huge impact on, on the world. If you're a single person, whether it's for a, a season or for a lifetime, the Bible encourages you to use your singleness as a gift from God to the glory of God. You are not defective you are not weird. You are not uh, half a Christian, someone who will be one day complete when you are married. That's simply not the case. And if you've heard that come from me or anyone in our church, we repent. It's not biblical at all. Singleness is good. It's a gift from God. But back to this commandment where we're going to talk a little bit more about marriage. Marriage, this commandment teaches us, is amazing. Marriage is a gift from God. Why? Let me give you eight reasons. Here are eight reasons. Now, in saying there are eight reasons, I'm sure that there are many more, but you have to draw the line somewhere. Uh, at a certain point, this becomes kidnapping. Uh, so, <laughs> eight reasons that marriage is amazing. Number one, marriage is amazing because God designed it. Marriage was God's idea. If you go back to the creation story in Genesis chapter 2, God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. God then caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. God then removed one of Adam's ribs. God then fashioned Eve out of Adam's rib, leading Jesus, who happened to be there, to conclude what therefore God has joined together, 
let not man separate. The reason that this is so important is that if God designed marriage, then he has every right to tell us how marriage should work, and we would be wise to listen to him. Now imagine this. Imagine this scenario. Uh, you decide you're, you know, you're getting to be a middle-aged person like me. I'm about to turn 46 years old. And like me, you have dreams of buying a brand new sports car. So you always wanted a Porsche, and you decide to get a special Porsche, Porsche imported from Germany, brought here to the United States. They deliver the Porsche. It's convertible. You put the top down, and then you proceed to drive that Porsche very, very fast into the Gulf of Mexico. You then pull out an oar, and you start paddling all the way to Miami. Now, what would happen if the designer of that car saw you doing this? Now, yes, he might cry. He might have a heart attack. He would probably say, das ist not gut. <laughs> because he designed the Porsche to drive very fast on dry ground. And you're ruining it by trying to sail it to Miami. Would you be wise to argue with him? No, of course not. And yet that's what we do all the time when it comes to marriage. God designed it. He knows exactly how it's supposed to work. And we take it and sail to Miami. We say, well, what's the big deal? Everybody lives together before they get married, right? Everybody sleeps together before they get married, right? Yeah, you know, there's, I look at pornography every once in a while, but it's no big deal. Everybody does it. There's no way that that's going to impact my relationship with my spouse or my relationship with my future spouse. We say, hey, we love each other. Anybody who loves each other can get married. Two men, two women, this one, that one. What's the big deal? Who am I to judge? Now remember, marriage was designed by God. If you want a marriage that works, you have to trust the designer. That's the first big thing. Number two, marriage is amazing because God designed it for friendship. God created Eve because Adam, like a lot of us, needed a friend. Genesis 2.20 the man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Eve was Adam's helper. She was his companion. She was his friend. They spent time with one another. They had conversations with each other. I think it's fair to say, if only by virtue of the fact that they were literally the only two people on the earth, that Eve was Adam's best friend. A word to married people. Have you married your best friend? What are you doing as a husband or as a wife to cultivate a deep friendship with the person to whom you're married. Single people who are looking to get married someday, presumably you're looking for someone who makes your heart skip a beat. We'll talk about that next. Romance, attraction, very important. 
But are you also looking for a friend? Are you looking for a partner? Are you looking for a companion, someone to live life with? Are you so focused on outward appearances, physical attraction, that you're missing out on someone who might very well be your lifelong best friend? It's so important. God designed marriage for friendship. And if you follow his design, you will find yourself married to your best friend. Number three, marriage is amazing because God designed it for romance. In the book of Proverbs, a a father is talking to his son about marriage, and he says this, Proverbs 5.18, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. That is in the Bible. I'm just reading the Bible. (laughs) I would make a terrible Puritan for many reasons. Be intoxicated always in her love. Now, does that sound like God wants you to have a cold, dry, lifeless marriage? Does that sound like he wants Lucy and Desi sleeping in separate beds in the bedroom? Of course not. Of course not. He wants your marriage to be passionate. He wants your marriage to be filled with romance. He wants your marriage to be intoxicating with delight. He wants your spouse to fill you uh, totally and fully, physically, spiritually, with great joy. Now, are there ups and downs in every marriage? Yes, of course there are. Not every day of your marriage is going to be like one of those Amish romance books down at the church library. (laughs) There are going to be times when you are going to wake up uh, at 3 a.m. and somebody's going to have to feed the baby or somebody's going to have to let a dog out or somebody's going to have to make sure there's not an intruder in the living room and you can be excused in those moments if you are not intoxicated by your spouse's love. It happens. But the goal is romance. Romance is the glue that holds our marriages together. Now, if you got married five minutes ago, uh, I have nothing to teach you about uh, having romance in your marriage. If you got married five decades ago, you might need to work on this just a little bit. But do work on it. It's worth it. Remember, romance is part of God's design for marriage. Number four. Marriage is amazing because God designed it for physical intimacy, also known as sex. It does not get any easier saying that. (laughs) When God created Adam and Eve, he told them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. God commanded them to make babies. Sex was literally part of his idea. God never commands us to do anything that is unholy or shameful or sinful in any way. He cannot do that. He is God. He is perfectly holy. He is perfectly good. And so when God commands physical intimacy between husbands and wife, then we should take that command very, very seriously. As I mentioned... 
Never a dull moment at Pinewoods Church. As I mentioned earlier, there's a whole book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon, that teaches us how amazing the physical relationship between husbands and wives, wives can and should be. And again, if I was a Puritan, I would quote it at length, but I'm not, so you can go read it on your own. The point is, sex is not some dirty, shameful thing, and we are missing the mark of what God has created when we treat it that way. Within the context of marriage, sex and sexuality is a beautiful thing. God designed sex, and physical intimacy is part of his design. It is a feature, not a bug. And so, if you are married, you should practice what the Bible preaches and enjoy physical intimacy with your spouse. And nine months from now, we will see if you are obeying God. <laughs> Somebody tell the nursery workers, we're about to get uh, crazy down there, all right? But I digress. Number five, marriage is amazing because God designed it not only for physical intimacy, but for spiritual intimacy. The Bible calls this sanctification. The Bible has a number of ways of describing this, but since we've sort of been camping out in the creation story, let's give our attention again to Genesis chapter 2 to see what God says about the, the spiritual intimacy that exists between husbands and wives in marriage. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Marriage is so amazing and so powerful because marriage creates a spiritual union, a one flesh union between a man and a woman. Uh, when you marry someone, you stand before that person, both physically and spiritually, naked and unashamed, completely known and completely loved. Now, you can nurture that spiritual in intimacy within the context of marriage by worshiping together, by praying together, by reading the Bible together, by serving God together. And as you draw closer to God together, the objective truth of that one flesh union will become the subjective experience of deep intimacy and even deeper delight. That's part of God's design for marriage. Spiritual intimacy. Two people becoming one flesh. Number six. Marriage is amazing because God designed it to be exclusive. To put it simply, in marriage, two become one. Once you introduce a third person or a fourth person, whether it's in the form of physical adultery or mental adultery in the form of lust, pornography, that sort of thing, then you destroy the, the spiritual union of husband and wife, which is designed to be an exclusive union, one flesh. Back to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 5, 15 through 17 Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. 
Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Now, don't get distracted by all the the water talk and the water imagery. This is a metaphor. This is a father talking to his son about marriage. And he's saying, when you just kind of do the Hollywood thing and the Hollywood values of, hey, man, sleep with whoever you want, wherever you want, whenever you want, then you will find yourself completely bankrupt. Your well will go dry. Marriage was designed to be a a lifelong monogamous relationship with one man and one woman. Again, as I mentioned, that includes virtual relationships, which, which is why Jesus said, if you even look at someone who is not your spouse with lust in your heart, then you have already effectively committed adultery with that person because whether or not you cross any physical lines with that person, you have crossed lines in your heart and in your mind, and that's where sin begins. Sin is not merely a a legalistic uh, checking the boxes, getting as close to the line without going over. Sin is a matter of the heart. If you are married, you should be in an exclusive marriage, physically, mentally. That was God's design. Number seven, marriage is amazing because God designed it not only to be exclusive, he designed it to be permanent. Marriage is a covenant, a solemn promise between two people that they will love each other and serve each other as husband and wife as long as they both shall live. In Mark 10, chapter 9, Mark 10, verse 9, Jesus said, What therefore God has joined together Let not man separate. Because marriage is a covenant, it was never meant to be disposable. There is no such thing as a starter husband or a starter wife. You trade in cars when they get old. You don't trade in your spouse when your spouse gets old. When God made covenants in the Bible, he said things like, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Those are future-oriented promises. Whenever I'm doing a a marriage, whenever I'm conducting a marriage ceremony, I always remind the prospective bride and the groom that the promises that they make as Christian people are not merely I-do promises, they are I-will promises. In other words, that the promises that we make as husbands and wives are not simply limited to how we feel in the moment. I do feel this way right now. They're oriented to what we, f- we will do and we will feel in the future. They're future-oriented promises. I will love you tomorrow even when you get old. I will love you tomorrow even if we go bankrupt. I will love you tomorrow, even if you get cancer. I will love you tomorrow, even if you're suffering from dementia. We make promises about the future when we get married because marriage was designed by God to be permanent. Even though Ruth chapter 1 is not explicitly uh, a conversation between a husband and wife in marriage, I think no other passage of Scripture captures the beauty of that lifelong covenant 
as Ruth chapter 1, verse 17, where Ruth says to Naomi, her mother-in-law, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more more also, if anything but death separates me from you. Number eight, marriage is amazing because marriage is a picture of the gospel. Marriage tells a story. Marriage is a parable. It uses the covenantal, oath-bound unity of a husband and wife to tell the story of the covenantal, oath-bound unity that we have with Jesus. The unity that exists between Jesus and and the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, after quoting the book of Genesis, says this This mystery, the mystery of marriage, is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The spiritual union that we experience in marriage, the love, the loyalty, the intimacy, is a foretaste of the spiritual union that we will have with Jesus when Jesus comes again. When Jesus comes again, we will once again be naked and unashamed. No more fig leaves, no more hiding, no more sin, no more death. We will be totally known and totally loved because we will be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus who was stripped naked and nailed to a Roman cross so that we might be called his bride, the church. He died so that we might be married to him forever in the kingdom of God. Marriage tells that story, a story of love and loyalty, intimacy, exclusivity, and ultimately, eternity. Now that leads to our second big idea, and it's this, that adultery destroys marriage. Adultery destroys marriage because it's built on a foundation of lies, Adultery says, I can be one with you physically without being one with you socially. I can be one with you physically without being your friend. It says, I can be one with you physically without being one with you spiritually. It says, I can be one with you physically without being one with you romantically. Adultery says that I can experience nakedness with you without experiencing vulnerability. It's a lie. It's simply not true. And every time that we commit adultery, every time that we break the seventh commandment, either mentally in our mind through lust or physically by entering into an illicit relationship with someone who is not not our spouse, Not only do we sin against our current or future spouse, not only do we sin against the God who designed marriage for his glory, we sin against ourselves. Adultery tears at the very fabric of our souls. The terrible irony of adultery is that in order for us to persist in this sin, we have to harden our hearts against the very thing 
that God has designed to soften our hearts. When we play around with adultery, we are playing with fire. The book of Proverbs in chapter 6 says this, Can a man carry fire next to his clothes and not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So it is with he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Let me close with this. I know for many of you who are gathered here today that the seventh commandment represents your greatest struggle in life. Your greatest struggle in life is sexual purity and holiness and making your marriage work to the glory of God. But even if the seventh commandment does not represent your greatest struggle in life, the Bible is clear that all of us have committed spiritual adultery against God. Jesus is the bridegroom, and we are the bride as the church, and the book of, of, the, the book of, of um, in the Old Testament, the book of Hosea, we're constantly told that we are spiritual adulterers who have been unfaithful to God. God has every right to divorce us. He has every right to put us away. He has every right to say, you are no longer my bride. I am separating myself from you. He doesn't say it. And remarkably, not not only does he not say it, he says the exact opposite thing. Looking out at, at his adulterous bride, looking out at the church, he says this, Hosea 2.19, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Hell is filled with adulterers. Heaven is filled with adulterers. Why? What's the difference? The difference is the groom. The difference is Jesus. The difference is the one who died on the cross so that we, his his unfaithful bride, the church, might might be united to him forever in a relationship that is beautiful and infinite and glorious and good. And that's why heaven is called the wedding supper of the Lamb. When Jesus comes again, when our groom comes back, when he arrives, it'll be like the greatest wedding reception that anyone has ever seen before or since. And so my encouragement to you this morning is to come to him, to come to him in faith. Commit to him. And then commit to your spouse or your future spouse honoring one of the greatest gifts that God has given us, the gift of marriage. Let's go to him now in prayer. O Lord our God, we do thank you for your faithfulness to us. We confess that we are often unfaithful to you, that we are often unfaithful to our spouse or our future spouse. Lord, we are sinful people who desperately need your grace. 
I pray, Lord God, that you would impress upon our hearts the reality of our forgiveness, the reality of your faithfulness to us, Lord God, that we might be changed. I pray, Lord, for anyone who is gathered here today or watching online who struggles particularly with this sin, who is hearing these words, feeling condemnation and shame and rejection, I pray, Lord God, that this, your son or your daughter, would be reminded that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I pray that all who hear these words would be reminded that they are no longer covered in shame, but they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ that they belong in the kingdom because you, Lord God, are making us new. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.